Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is a Florida native now living in Atlanta and is married and with four sons. She's an award-winning speaker, media personality, entrepreneur, and strategist. She created SOFU, the name used to refer to the eight cities of South Fulton County. That's around Atlanta. She founded South Fulton Lifestyle Magazine and is the host of the TV and radio show, According to Michelle. Her publication, South Fulton Lifestyle, was named Publication of the Year in Atlanta three years in a row. She's been recognized as the top 100 influential women in Georgia and Atlanta several times by different organizations and the top 25 most powerful women in Atlanta. She also created the Moms All In Conference for female executives and entrepreneurs. We will talk to her about her new book, Raising Significance, a guide to raising independent, well-rounded, and confident kids. Please welcome to the program, Michelle Taylor Willis. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Dr. Gary. Well, that's a mouthful. I am so excited to have you on the program and talk about leadership as a responsibility, not a position with four boys, with community work that you've done, with a TV and radio show. In order to be able to accomplish all this, there's a lot of stories that we need to hear about how you've accomplished it, what areas of leadership you've developed in yourself over the years, and how you've come to where you are today. So tell us a little bit about your background and bring us up to date. All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Dr. Gary. You are a ball of energy, so I can tell already this is going to be fun. Yeah. So, you know, my background is sales, really. I mean, I got my start like a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners do, right? And I got to tell you, I think salespeople, sometimes we don't make the best bosses, but we do make for great businesses because we know how to go out and get the business, right? So I started off in sales. I mean, my first job out of school was working for Ferguson Enterprises in sales. And then I went into the technology industry when before the bubble burst, right? So I worked that and did sales for that. And then I found my dream job in pharmaceutical sales. And then my second dream job was just medical device sales, right? And then after that, I branched out into entrepreneurship. How was that transition when you went from sales? Was there a big transition going from pharma, IT, and medical device sales into entrepreneurship? And what specifically did you dive into in entrepreneurship? Yeah. So in terms of what was the transition like, it wasn't tough. And I'll tell you why. Because first of all, I'm from generations of entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship and business ownership is is in my blood. I really think that like there's a special node or whatever on like that DNA string for entrepreneurs that just gets passed down. So that's the first thing. Um, I've watched my whole family, like I said, generationally train me for this. The second piece is I always was doing something entrepreneurially on the side while I was in corporate America, right? So I was always kind of doing these things and saving up and building so that I could make a swift exit out of corporate into a full-time 
business ownership space. So the transition wasn't as stark for me as it might be for some people, right? I can tell you for me, it was stark because when I started my first business in 1990, I came out from the military and manufacturing, had no sales experience. And I can tell you, I was a complete failure in sales. Like I didn't know to have those skills. So the challenge for me was just what you're saying, having sales experience and having your own business had made that transition a lot easier. So kudos to you for that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's great because you got to sell, right? I mean, everybody's in sales, whether you have salesperson or business development or sales rep behind your name or not, especially if you own a business, if you're running a business, starting a business, you are absolutely in sales, but we're in, we're in sales in life, right? I mean, everybody's always in sales. My kids, my nine-year-old is in sales. I mean, he's selling me something every 30 to 45 minutes, (laughs) right? Trying to convince you of something, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's take this step, though. When you made the transition, you said it wasn't that hard, but there had to be a moment when you made that choice. You made the decision. I'm going to go out on my own. And what was the catalyst for that? Do you remember if it was just the right time, the right opportunity, or was it a feeling or, you know, what made you make that choice? Yeah. So it was a couple of things. The timing, what I did is I did kind of the stair-step transition too. I should be pretty transparent about that. So I went from being in sales at a high level salesperson, right? In medical device sales. And then I stepped down and went to like part-time medical device sales, right? And I was running, I had an HR company that I had with a couple of partners, And was doing that while I was kind of doing this part-time thing. It got to the point to where we were doing so much business in this part-time, quote-unquote, like side hustle thing, where I had to have a discussion with my husband. And it got to the point to where it was like, you know, the reason I went part-time was really because I just had my fourth son. And I knew that I was going to be doing something entrepreneurially, but I figured I would wait like two, three, four years kind of down the road before I dove in all the way. But about six, nine months into this kind of part-time thing and me just focusing on the kids, I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. Like, I love my kids, but stay-at-home mom is not my thing. Like, it was just crazy. And I still kind of had this side hustle HR company that we were building, and it was just getting crazy busy. So I had a discussion with my husband. And when we first got married, we always said, Somebody was going to be the entrepreneur and the business owner, and somebody was going to work in corporate America. That was our deal when we got married. We really thought it was going to be him. I thought he was going to be the one that was going to go out and build like, you know, these companies. And I would be the career salesperson making a great salary, just selling stuff. Right. So we sat down and we had this conversation and it was like, listen, we got to do something different. I am not made to be the stay at home mom and kind of work a side hustle thing. And this business is actually picking up. Like I can't, you know, we got to figure out what we're going to do. And so we made an educated decision. We had money, you know, saved and put aside, which I suggest everybody, if you're working corporate, figure out what your business is, get a budget for your business, find out what it takes monthly to make your business run without you bringing any money in, save six to 12 months of that, and then go out and start your business. Sidebar, right? Well, that's great advice. No matter what business you're in, like a lot of restaurants, they say, just plan on having two years in the bank because it might take that long for you to start actually making money. So that's right. Yeah. It's a good entrepreneurial six to 12 months minimum. Minimum. That's right. 
So I want to go back to this, this discussion though, that you had with your husband. We talk about this in leadership. Everything's inside out. You have to know what you stand for, what's important to you. And you said, I, I'm just not going to be the stay-at-home mom. So I, yeah. I know that about myself. Express that to my husband and have this conversation as a team now based on what you know about yourself and what you know about the team. You're a new mom. You had your fourth child. You're a young baby, whatever. And now you've got to have – this is a tough conversation, maybe. Well, yeah, not so much because okay. here's the thing, because my husband, I believe, knows who he married. <laughs> He's always known, right? So I have this kind of like drive that never, never really stops. And so he's watching all of this play out. And I think he knew that, you know, mom staying home wasn't necessarily me. Now, what's interesting is that I'm home all the time. I've always worked from home as a sales rep, right? I, my office has always been my car and my home office. So that's the beautiful thing about like, I've always been a stay at home mom in the sense that I have access to my kids very regularly. And that's one of the things I love about being an entrepreneur and running my own business. I get to decide how I want to manage my kids and my family. So it was just the fact that there was nothing else running in the background, but motherhood. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just not built for that. I think women who are, it's amazing and it's great and hats off to you, but I need to be doing something else. And business is kind of like, is my thing. And he knew that. So that discussion didn't come out of nowhere. One of the things, again, with my husband and I is that, especially in the early years of our marriage, we were very communicative. So there was never really a time that went by that he didn't know what I was thinking or I didn't know what he was thinking because we were often on the same page because we talked so much about everything. We planned every three months, every year we go away and do like these planning sessions of like what's happening this year in our first business, which is our family. So the answer to your question is it wasn't really that tough because it didn't really come out of nowhere, but it was a conversation like, hey, and I can tell you, I remember the freezer broke in our kitchen. We had like in that house, we had a separate freezer and like kind of the Sub-Zero like setup, mm -hmm. right? And so we had the freezer and the freezer just kept making this crazy noise, Gary, like. And we had this discussion actually standing by the freezer. And I was like, it's going to cost us a fortune to fix this freezer because of the freezer it is. And I was like, so busy in the company and we got to pull money out from here. And, and so we're like, let's just sit down and have this conversation. So we had this conversation around this roaring sound in our freezer. And we were like, once I leave this corporate position, even though it's only part-time, like this money's gone, we're going to be using this money now operationally. And But this freezer was what spurred it which is weird, right? I don't know at what point the conversation would have happened if the freezer hadn't started going crazy and we had to have, have like this money talk about spending thousands of dollars to replace this freezer or buying a new one and then what our money situation looked like and what it was going to look like. And but that's how it all came up. So it wasn't too tough a conversation. It was weird because we were standing like literally in front of the freezer having it for like an hour and a half, no lie. <laughs> you know, as you're talking about this, there's a couple of things that strike me. Number one is, even though you had that conversation, it wasn't a surprise because you've been clear about who you were from the beginning. You've had yeah. these long conversations. And then as I, I wrote down this, this note, as I'm sitting there listening to you, is you designed your life to match your lifestyle and your values. That's exactly right. You looked at your strengths. You looked at the way you wanted to live your life. And you look at your partner and you say, look, this is the way I want to live my life. This is why I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to do this. Look, the strength is not to be a stay-at-home mom. 
the strength is to be able to balance all these things in a way that I'm, I'm still home a lot, but I'm an entrepreneur. That's what my blood's at. So as you were talking, you were talking about what we talk about in our leadership program, meeting cadence. And you said we have a, a yearly planning session and a quarterly review, we call it. Our meeting cadence, we talk about daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual planning. And you've got to do all these things. But for a family to do it, that's pretty unusual. And it's pretty smart. And it keeps things aligned. It keeps the mission, the direction, and it gives people the opportunity to have the really tough conversations if you need to have it. You know, you look at the budget, you look at the finances, you look at the strategy, the direction, the contributions, the kids, the house, all of this stuff, you look at it globally. And then each quarterly you review, how are we doing? Yeah. And you did that with your husband. Oh, yeah. That's pretty different. Yeah, I don't hear about a lot of people doing that, but it doesn't mean they're not, you know, I guess. Yeah, it was just something, like I said, especially in the early years. And it's funny, we just had this discussion right about the beginning of December, I believe. And my my husband was like, you know, we haven't had a planning session this year. We went through this whole year. It's crazy because COVID just like, (laughs) you know, usually you go away for the weekend and you didn't like, it just shut everything down. And we were like, you know, we got to jump back on it. It just makes sense. I mean, you got to think your first business is your family, right? And so we have to run our families like they are a business. And then we have to run our businesses like we want to run our families. And what I mean by that is so many people dive into entrepreneurship, just throwing stuff on the wall and seeing what sticks. But many times, or hopefully in your in your personal business, you're not throwing stuff on the wall to see what sticks. You have a budget right? You know how much the electricity costs and the gas costs, and you know how much it takes to run your household every month. So why wouldn't you know how much it costs to run your business every month? You save, you know, three, six, 12 months as an emergency fund in your personal business. Why wouldn't you have three, six, 12 months saved in your business business? 24 months, right? So we have to just be very intentional about how we run our businesses. But our first responsibility is to run that family business better than any business, right? Absolutely. I mean, and I start to get this picture of a family P&L. Yeah. You know, you've got your profit, the top line revenue or the salaries and the revenue and everything you're bringing. And then you just go all the way down with your cost of goods sold, all your other costs, your salaries, your retirement fund, everything. You get to a net income and you look yeah. at the bottom of the net income and you go, hey, we have enough to go on vacation this year right. or not. It makes a lot of sense. And to be honest and transparent, like some years look better than others. There have been some years where we look at it going, yeah, this isn't, we got to do better, right? Right. We shouldn't be running our business like this. And there's been other years where we're like, we killed it this year. You know what I mean? So since we're talking family, let's talk family. Okay. Since everything is inside out, we have to know ourselves, have to take care of each other in, in our partners, our spouses, and then the kids and our family and then our business and in that order. You know, 85% of all performance problems at work are because of things outside of work. So in the work that we do with leaders, we tell them, remind them to be compassionately accountable in the leadership of these people. Please make sure that you understand the whole human being. So your book, okay, this, this, this book that you've got, Raising Significance, and there's all kinds of nuances to that title, right? Raising Significance which it could be the philosophical raising the thought, raising significance to the manifested with your children, raising the significance of your children is the way I interpret that. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about 
what the essence of that book is and why parenting, as I've always said, is the most important leadership position that we have. Yeah. So let me say this. John Maxwell, I think, said it best, and I completely agree. But the true sign, I think it's John Maxwell, the true sign of a leader is not by how many times he tells people to do stuff or how many businesses he sold or how great he does or she does standing up in front of a crowd, but it's by who you bring up and who's a leader because of you, right? And so my whole tagline, everything I stand for is about this empowerment piece, empowering people to empower people, empowering women to empower women, right? And so as a leader, it's about who are you training to lead somebody else? That's what great leaders do. And as, so if you take that and you juxtapose that to raising kids, it's the exact, like your job, I say often, our job as parents, my job as a mom is to, to return my kids back to God in as good or better shape than I found them, right? I get that from my Aunt Tracy. And so really that's, that's leadership because if we've done our jobs right, then we raise people who aren't just contributing members of society. These are people who are changing society. They are game changers. And so I don't want my kids just to be contributing members of society. I want them to freaking change the world. I want the world to be different because four Willis boys did something to leave their mark. And now the world has changed and other people are changing other people because of these four boys. That's significance, right? And that's what significance means. I think success is the enemy to significance. Success is you get it right and everything's great in your world. Significance is you get it right. Everything's great in your world. You bring somebody else in and you teach them how to be great and make sure everything is great in their world so that they can bring somebody else in, make things great in their world and teach somebody else how to do it, right? And so that's the thought behind the book. And I got to give kudos to my husband. My husband is the one that actually came up with the title. I had like, I think I just had like a guide to raising significant kids or something like that. And he came in and he's like, you're writing a book? And he didn't even know I was writing. He's like, you're writing a book? I'm like, yeah, I'm just typing away. And he goes, what about raising significance? And I was like, okay. So to be honest, I was kind of like, that's stupid. I'm not gonna, whatever. I don't need your help. I'm good here. Yeah. And then I'm like, raising significance. It's brilliant. You know? <laughs> it finally hits you, right? After you let it go, right? When I sent it to the first round of people that I had read it, you know, and, and the, my really good friend, Dana, was like, God, that's a great title. Great job, Michelle. It's like, Galen oh, came up with it, you know? <laughs> it's not mine. A fantastic title, Raising Significance. So I just got to make sure I give him kudos on that. So along those lines, I think, and, and I, I might say it's slightly different, but I established a vision and expectation. We established a vision and expectation, their mother and myself, with my sons, two sons, that said, all we want you to do is be better parents than we are. Mm. That's it. Just be better parents than we are. And I can remember when my son was two years old and my father was brought up in the Great Depression, like so many people my age, and corporal punishment was the only way to communicate discipline. That's the way we were brought up, okay? And that's the only option they knew. And that's the way it was done. So when my son was two and he did something wrong, wouldn't listen to me a couple of times, frustrated me. I whacked him on the bottom and my wife came into the living room and she says, what are you doing? And I said, well, uh, uh, he, uh, he wouldn't do what I told him to do. And she said, so you hit him. What does a two-year-old have to do to a 150-pound man to cause them to bring violence upon them? And the way she said it, I was like, whoa, 
well, he wouldn't do what I want him to do. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child, you know. And I said, what else can I do? Well, she was a counselor, so she gave me 10 more options. <laughs> so I'm sitting there with righteous indignation as she tells me, you can give him a timeout. You can talk to him. You can train him. You can teach him. You can, you know, send him to his room. You can have him clean something up. Do something. Do anything but hit him. And I said, well, if I do all those things and he still won't do it, can I hit him? And she goes, look, if you go that far, fine, I'll let you do that. I'm like, okay. So my manly insignificance at that moment was intact, okay? Well, I never hit my sons again. So I changed this string of violence. Mm -hmm. And Michelle, when I saw my son years later on Christmas Eve, and my grandson was about six and my granddaughter three and they, the granddaughter grandson kind of got into it. And my grandson pushed his sister. I watched my son walk over to my grandson, put his hand on my, my grandson's shoulder, sit down on the floor, talk to him about his behavior and say to him, I want you to turn to your sister and tell her you're sorry. And very quickly, he turned, oh, I'm sorry. And he looks at me, and says, no, you tell her. You're sorry. And the way he said it, my grandson, almost with tears in his eyes, realizing that he hurt his sister right. with yeah. heartfelt apology, actually said it. That was the moment when I saw that, that I knew that he was a better father than I ever was. Oh, wow. And they did exactly what you you put it out there. And that's what manifested. That's what manifested. We do it. And I, I told my sons in maybe five or six or seven generations, maybe we'll get it right. Listen, parenting is, it truly doesn't come with a manual. I think the closest manual is probably from my, you know, is the Bible, not necessarily mm -hmm. because it's religious, just because I think it just has like great teaching tools, just like life lessons, just like common sense. Just right? wisdom. Yes. Wisdom, just like great wise things. I tell people all the time. I mean, you don't have to like be a Bible thumper or a huge Christian to just take like Proverbs. It's just great teaching tools for all of us. Just got to pay attention. Absolutely. Just got to pay attention. Yeah. So what advice do you have for parents now in raising significance? What are the one or two things that you could say you spent time writing this book so that you could really codify your philosophy on raising kids and raising significance? What would you say are a couple of the things that you would say to parents are the most significant philosophies, concepts, thoughts, ideas that you could recommend now having gone down this path and still going down it as a parent. I mean, I still am yeah. as a parent, as a grandparent. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So the first thing, and this is the first tenet in the book, it's obey immediately and happily. And the reason that that is so important is because our job is to train our children and to make them trainers, right? Mm -hmm. And if they don't listen to us, if they don't do what we tell them to do, it's not possible for them to happen. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this in the book. And the book actually, you know, it's, it's less than 80 pages, I think, printed. You can read it in less than an hour, probably, or in about an hour. But the big thing for the book is, for this specific tenet, is that if you get your kids or when you get your kids in a position where they listen to you and they do what you tell them to do immediately and without question, it saves time and it really could save their lives, right? I use an example in the book where, you know, I tell my kids, get in the car. Like if you see something weird happening in Atlanta, you can get carjacked. You could be in the richest area of Atlanta and get carjacked just as fast as you could be in the poorest area in Atlanta and get carjacked, right? So you see things, weird things happening. So you tell your kids, get in the car, get in the car. And the kids are still like milling around like, ah, oh, like get in the car. 
And we hear where like kids get kidnapped and people get carjacked. And it's just like, if you just do what I tell you to do, I literally, it could be a life or death situation here. Like you don't get an option. Act first and we'll talk later. Mm because things happen so fast now, especially with kids that they just don't. I mean, I see, I was in the store the other day and I saw this husband and wife and a kid, she must've been about three and the three-year-old's just milling around, going about her business, not, you know, and, and the dad's in the chicken and I can hear her saying, I don't remember the little girl's name, but I'm like, Katie, Katie, get over here. And Katie's just like, yeah, you know, Katie, get over here. Like somebody could have snatched Katie up without her parents even knowing Mm-hmm. gone and they're still screwing around in the poultry and the bacon section do you know what i mean yeah. it's an extreme circumstance but it's not i get an amber alert once a week for a kidnapped kid so this obey immediately and happily thing is serious and so that's an extreme case but again we have to train them to be trainers how am i going to train you to do something if you don't listen to me how does that happen Right. And I think when we talk about leadership and emotional intelligence, I'm going to tie this in very quickly because emotional intelligence is the ability to be able to kind of read the emotion of the person at the time and teaching the child that says, listen, when I tell you to do something, listen to the tone of my voice. That's exactly right. And I'm not kidding. It's mom's voice. You know, it's dad's voice. Listen to the tone. Get in the car. I can remember my dad's voice. There was a tone that was like, you do not mess around when you hear that tone. That's right. That's right. But you don't use that tone very often. Exactly. And you shouldn't have to. And if you obey immediately and happily, we don't even have to get there. I mean, Dr. Gary, it's amazing to me. I love it. When I tell my kids, go clean your room and they're gone. I'm sometimes going like, where's Justin? And they're like, he's cleaning his room. You told him to go clean. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) Right. It's magical. It saves so much time. Think about all the time we spend as parents telling our kids over, go clean your room, go clean your room. Go clean your room. Why do I have to say it five times? I never did that. I I would always tell them there are consequences that you're not going to like if I have to tell you twice. And you probably say it. Once you say it, get to that, you say it in that voice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or I would just ask them the question, do I need to say it again? And they know what's coming. And I think that that's the challenge that we have. You know, as parents, you know, a lot of parents, we use the definition of leadership as the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassion, accountability, and the balance of compassion, accountability in parenting. We've all heard it many, many times. It's called tough love is we always want to demonstrate love, but we also want to be tough because the struggle of growing up is not something to be taken lightly. We don't want our children to suffer but we do want them to struggle because struggle makes it stronger. And sometimes that struggle is to overcome the desire to talk back or to resist or to whatever, because they're growing right in a given situation when they're asked to do something, right? There are consequences to resistance and they have to learn that when they're five and 10, because if they do it when they're 25, they could lose a job. That's exactly right. It's so Great that you say that, Dr. Gary. I talk about that in the book. Like, we have to train them how to take direction from other people. We have to train them how to act like they got some sense when they're in school, right? We have to train them, you know, whether you want to be an entrepreneur now or later, you might, you might have to work for somebody. You have to take instruction. It just is what it is. Right. And so if you didn't take instruction from me, and I'm the person that's like put on earth to give you that instruction, it's my job to instruct you. What do you tell them when you say obey, obey happily? And they say, well, what if I don't agree with you? What if I think you're asking me to do something that's wrong or it's not? What if they see something that you don't see? 
Then what? From us or for someone else? If you're telling a child to do something and they see something that you don't see and they resist. Oh, you mean like in a situation like out there or blah, 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 blah. Well, I could role play this. I say, hey, mom, you want me to be a robot? You don't ever want me to question something you're telling me to do? Or maybe I don't understand what you're telling me to do. How do I ask you without just shutting up, being putting a smile on my face, leaving? And I don't do it because I didn't understand what the heck you were talking about. How do you deal with that? Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways. So the first is the earlier you teach kids to obey immediately and happily, the less responses you'll get like that. But there'll also be a mutual respect because the children will be trained that you absolutely have a voice, right? You have a voice. We can have discussions about it, but the instruction comes first. You reacting or you acting comes first, right? So I tell you to clean your room. It's a great example. I tell you to clean your room. Okay, mom, I'm going to clean my room right now. Can I mention something to you first? Sure. What you got? I, okay, but mom, I want you to know I am going to clean my room. And my kids will say, I'm not being disrespectful because respect is a big thing in this house, right? So they'll say, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I have to be at such and such practice. If I start cleaning my room now, then it's going to make me late for the practice. I don't want to be disrespectful, but I want to make sure I do what you want me to do, but I know that I need to be. And so I'm like, okay, you know what? That's a great point. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to get you to practice now, but when we come back from practice, it is your first responsibility to get in that room and to make it look like it's the cleanest thing ever, right? So there's opportunities to do that, but it's respectfully done. And my kids are taught, like if they're going to push back, they can push back on me, but it's respectfully done. So if I say, go clean your room, well, I, don't, I can't clean my room now. I've got, I've got practice. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Like, you'll never see practice again talking to me like that, sweetie, right. ever. Right. Right. And I'm not saying those times haven't happened, but they're few and far between, but they've been trained to be respectful because I respect them. When they finish cleaning their room, the first thing I say is, thank you for obeying immediately and happily. Thank you for cleaning your room. I appreciate you listening to me. It makes it so much. Isn't it great when I'm not screaming, you know, and raising yeah. my voice, you know? So it, there are all these things working together, Dr. Gary, but there is absolutely an opportunity for movement. It just has to be done respectfully and has to be done right. Does that answer your question? Perfectly. And I really appreciate the way you use that example with cleaning the room and them sharing information that might, you know, you might have forgotten that they had practice, but they share it respectfully and understand they shared it with the right intent. You know, I, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful. That's the intent. I'm going to bring this up. I'm not resisting. I just, here's my choices. I really want to get to practice early and so on. So it actually happens often, not often when I'll say, go do something. And they're like, Hey mom, remember that such and such. And it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's fine. But I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it's actually a phrase that I hear pretty regularly. I don't mean to be disrespectful mom, but you know, that's a great example. And it answers my question beautifully. And I think that a lot of people can learn from it. So I want to finish up with my favorite question. It's the question I ask everybody. All right. And the question is this, Michelle, if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to yourself 20 years ago, what would that letter say to Michelle Taylor Willis 20 or 25 years ago? What advice would you give yourself? That's a good one. Advice. Buy more real estate earlier. 
Okay. Yeah. But by real estate earlier. What would you tell Michelle? Yeah, I would tell Michelle that for sure. Michelle, buy that house now and don't sell this one, buy another one. And don't sell that one, buy another one on top of that. Mm. Learn to monetize your relationships now. Go a little higher on the corporate ladder and don't be so resistant to being a leader in corporate America. Mm. Take that opportunity, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that I never wanted to be, I just wanted to say a sales rep and I got, you know, as I'm moving to middle management and so I was like, I just want to be a sales rep. That's all I want to do. That's all I want to do. And, you know, for parenting, I think I would say maybe be a little more patient earlier. Right. You know, it's funny when you have four kids, the first one kind of gets all of it. And the fourth one is a little less or multiple kids, I should say. From a parenting, I'm trying to think of what I might say. Maybe that, a little bit more patient. Yeah, that's definitely where I, I could have been a lot more patient. Yeah. Sometimes we expect things to be a certain way. And yeah. our way is not necessarily the best way for our children. Yeah. It needs to be their way. I've gotten really good at this with the last three kids. Well, in the fourth one now, but I think earlier with my first son, you know, really... And I talk about this in the book, actually, is developing their passions earlier, early, right? I didn't really get that until my first son was about 12 when I realized that. And then I, I, the light bulb went on. So I think I would say earlier, fuel your kids' passions as soon as possible. I know that now, but I didn't know that. You know, my oldest son is 21, right? So I didn't know that when he was zero or one. Well, that's because you had him when you were at like 10. I mean, come on. Yeah, you're... I was like a marvel. I was like a modern Very marvel. Young. Very Science young. had no idea what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle, I want to thank you for being our guest today. It's been a fun journey listening to you about your business experience, your sales experience, your entrepreneurial experience. And now as a, a wife, a mother, a parent, a developer of children and raising significance, I, I, I think I'd like to meet your children one day. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> I, in fact, maybe I can have all four of them on a podcast just oh my at, at the same time. Would, would that be fun? They would love that. And my kids are better humans than I could ever ever imagine being and you would have a, their joys you would have a blast with them they're hilarious they need their own reality show yeah i think i can say the same about my sons thank you so much michelle i appreciate it thanks for being on the show listen dr gary thank you for having me you were fantastic and i'd love to come back anytime well i really appreciate it i'm dr gary making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability Thanks for listening again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.